Our text comes from John 13, verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is the word of the Lord. I thought at least if we have a short teaching text, then, uh, then that could be like the shortest thing. So uh, recently, uh, Sam Smith and the artist Kim Petrus were the first openly non-binary artist and transgender solo artist to hit number one on Billboard's Hot 100. Uh, normally I'm not uh, like surveying Billboard's Hot 100 to do my music choices, um, but if you learned about this the same way I did, it was through a major media news outlet. And when I, this was a few weeks back, like right before Halloween, that this information kind of came across. And in one of, a, like a UK publication, Smith, uh, has this to say about this song, Unholy. Unholy just came from pure creativity. It was one of the purest songs ever for me. Now, if you don't know the track I'm talking about or even the music video or anything surrounding it, here are some of the lyrics just to get a sense of the song. And I'm just gonna read them, so bear with me. I'm not gonna sing them or anything. Uh, a lucky, lucky girl, she got married to a boy like you. She'd kick you out if she ever, ever knew about all the stuff you tell me that you do. Dirty, dirty boy, you know everyone is talking on the scene. I hear them whispering about the places that you've been, I guess, and how you don't know how to keep your business clean. See, later Smith goes on to describe their role in the public square to, quote, spread the love with it. I'm not quite sure what that means, but uh, if you read or you listen to any of Smith's interviews, I, I, I think it means something like this. Uh, the majority of, of their life, they did not find a place to express who they were in any public sense. And so this becomes a place of expression. It's their desire to curate spaces where people can do so, where they can freely express themselves without shame on the other side. And in turn, to quote the artist, this song is about, quote, letting the freakiness out. So I'm not here to like, I'm, by the way, I know very little about music. So this is not me criticizing the music or Smith or some strained plea for holiness in the public square. Like the church has enough stuff to clean up for then like pastors in Des Moines to be making calls like that. That's not the point. What I want to make is an observation that across the various interviews, and you can go and read all those things for yourself, but across the various interviews and commentary on this song, Unholy, the most offensive thing about the song is not the sexual license, it's not the kink, it's not letting the freakiness out. The most offensive thing is the betrayal of trust. And in part, like if you watch the music video, it's the betrayal of trust between a husband and a wife, but most offensive is the betrayal of trust to oneself about not being true to your desires. And what's wrapped up in this song and why I mention it in a talk like this is, is not only the recognition of, of Smith and Petrus for their identity in conjunction with, with their work, which is a beautiful thing, like we just have to reckon with that. But it's also the, the fact that this corresponds with what many of you asked to explore in this controversial church series namely Jesus and the LGBTQIA plus community. And this is no simple thing, as Gray was saying earlier. In fact, it is no stretch of the imagination to say that this morning, this topic of Jesus and the LGBTQ plus community is like hitting an open nerve. Have you ever hit your funny bone? Have you done this recently? 
Uh, the other day, I got a tattoo on my elbow, and then when I was sitting down, I hit that spot, and I was like, oh, that's what this sermon is. It was like a metaphor in, I don't know, or just a lived experience of what you might feel for the next. You, you are a sexual or gender minority, and maybe you're closeted, maybe you're out, um, but it took every ounce of energy for you to come here this morning, knowing that this is what we're talking about. And so first, I honor you. Like, to the shame of our tradition, to the shame of white evangelicalism, there has been an impulse to treat gender and sexual minorities as, as problems to be solved rather than people who bear the image and dignity and beauty of God. And, and more so as like questions to be answered and then once a simple answer is given to simply being moved on from. So to the LGBTQ plus people who find themselves in our community, like I, and you felt like a problem in the church, I just wanna say, I don't see you that way. And by God's grace, we will not see you that way. We don't experience you that way. You have this beautiful gift, which is yourself that you're giving into a community like this. You are not a problem, quite the opposite. You are a person upon whom the creator image, the creator God's image rests. And so for the ways uh, that we have diminished the beauty of that reality, I am sorry. I, I, my like, my words right here do not cover over the wounds. I'm not naive to think that they do, but it is a place for us to start. I'm sorry for the ways that you've been used like political pawns by an angry church in a culture war. Uh, and, and more so, I'm, I'm sorry that you have been left alone to pursue Jesus. That in communities who say they follow Jesus, you have been trivialized as the idolatry of marriage is held up as the highest good and you've been left alone. And for, that is like the deep sadness that grieves me in this because that is not the highest good. The highest good is union with God through the spirit. That is the highest good. And so if this maps onto your story, I honor you. I thank you for you giving the gift of your presence to us. We, we want to be the type of community to grow into the type of people who cannot just reciprocate, but who have an openness in our lives to receive and to flourish and to learn with and from you. And all of that said, I am so aware that I'm not the ideal candidate for this talk. Like none of what I'm about to say comes from a lived experience. I am a straight, married with kids, white dude. So in many sense, like I get that. I'm not naive to it. So in all of this, this is really my humble attempt to pastor this congregation through what was the most requested topic in the controversial church series, Jesus and the LGBTQ plus community. I kid you not, there is not even a close second. Almost every single entry that someone wrote in had a, like a reference to this question. I will not be able to answer all the questions. I will not be able to get into all of the dynamics of gender identity and gender dysphoria. By the way, I'm not even qualified to do that. I would just be citing the people smarter than me. If you have questions about that and you like genuinely want to know where do I go to wrestle with people who think about this, I can email you a well-curated list of books and resources, but we will not get into all of that. So I just wanna be straightforward with you. This here is a loaded question. This is a loaded topic. There are pastoral and ethical and biblical implications. And so I just, I just wanna like get us off on the same page. What you hear today is not my final word on the conversation. I am not by any means coming down the proverbial mountain with two stone tablets of my opinion saying, thus saith the Lord. And so um, as we work our way through 
My guess is that some of my readings, the way that I interpret the data points, you will say that is too traditional. And on other points, you say that may be, be, that may be too progressive. My hope is that we could actually become the type of people who dialogue across difference. I am willing to hold that space. I'm inviting our leadership to do the same and I wanna extend the same invitation to you as well. It is and will be hard and I think the juice is worth the squeeze. So that is my preamble. And here's where I want us to start. I, I want us to explore four things this morning. I'm gonna, for time, I'm gonna move a little bit uh, quickly because this may be the longest sermon you hear from a Christian pastor. So let me just say, I clocked it in last night at 50 minutes, probably gonna be 60, but we'll, I got a clock here and we'll, at some point, maybe we'll just cut it all off. So four things for this morning. The language we use, the posture that we hold, how we got to a cultural moment like this. And then lastly, the Bible as a place of loving union with God and with the LGBTQ plus community. Again, this may be very long, so this is my like, I don't know, simple request. Please be patient. If, if you need to at any point, like we're gonna actually have a time for like a little seventh inning stretch where I invite you to stand up. But if at any time you're like feeling a little unsettled, get down, get some coffee, get some tea, come back, do what you need to do. But let me also say this. Sometimes there is a topic that is so culturally charged that we need to just take the time. We need to dive in deep. We need to explore the nuance. We need to go into the nook and crannies as like this forum allows us. And so that is where I, I hope that we would go into language, our posture, the cultural moment, and the Bible. So let's just uh, start it off. If you're taking notes, language. Um, words matter. I've noticed in like my, in most of my relationships that words are the things that get me into trouble. And, and more often than not, the reason is because words have a meaning and significant and that meaning and significance, it's based on the context. And so let's just think about the conversation at hand and the words available to us. There's a basic grouping, LGBTQIA+. And you could of course go to a teaching and hear maybe somebody rattle off what they think all those things are and they probably just got it off the internet. So I'm just gonna invite you to do the same. Just see what those are. It's a grouping that brings together sexual orientation and expression or a lack thereof, gender identity and more. And then in church spaces, the conversation gets even more, not nuanced, but more complex because there are side A Christians, side B Christians, side Y, side X. And you're like, I didn't, and these are not to pit people against one another. These are just trying to give some scaffolding to stand upon to make sense of an intrinsic part of our identity, namely our sexual identity. These are important. And all of these things are an attempt to get clarity about things like this, whether or not sexual intercourse between two people of the same sex is blessed by God. But what should be the goal for a Christian with same-sex attractions? Is sexual attraction to the same sex sinful? Can and should a person with same-sex attractions pursue changing their attractions through therapy or interventions? Let me just do a side note on this one. No, no. Like it's likely that the things that happen in those spaces are akin to like child, like they're abusive. So let me just say, I think we can address that question before we get into the rest of that. Um, and most, almost everybody across the board agrees with that except for an obscure group. 
So lastly, can people with same-sex attractions identify as LGBTQ plus while being Christian? All of the language that we have is an attempt to orient oneself, no pun intended, around those questions. Because roughly, you know, 96% of us, we've never had to consider these questions. Let's just be honest. At no point in your life have you had to wrestle through that. But for 2 to 3% of women and 3 to 4% of men, this is a defining inflection point in their life. All of a sudden, the hormones start coming through at puberty, and the thing that you're waiting for to happen doesn't happen. Or all of a sudden, it does, like you're, like there is this place in your body where you're not sure what's going on. And so my point is this. It's okay to not know a category or, or a word. Like when it comes to language, it's okay if you don't know. Like you're not a bigot if you don't know what all of the sides are or what the letters are, like, are associated with. But it's not okay to just sit in ignorance. In fact, it's helpful to ask a question. And if somebody has the courage to use that language, perhaps it would be generous of you in turn to ask a question. I don't understand what that means. See, what if the words and the categories that are unfamiliar were primarily opportunities to learn and love. See, when it comes to Jesus and the LGBTQ plus community, the words that we speak have a type of force behind them. That is, they matter. And they matter not because our greatest desire in this church or in the church in general is to be, like, quote unquote, politically correct. They matter because behind the words are people. Not problems to be solved, but people to be loved. And as followers of Jesus... By the way, this is who Jesus is, somebody who gave his life as a ransom for people. So because there's people there, our fundamental posture ought to be one of commendation and compassion. When I talk about language, I, I, I recognize the significance and importance of all the categories, but when I, I want us to hear these two words, commendation and compassion. So what do I mean? Um, when the psalmist in Psalm 8 starts riffing on the scriptures, namely Genesis 1 and the creation account, the, the psalmist says this, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. In other words, do you know how amazing you are? Like we should, did you know that you got to sit next to Wes this morning? Like you had no idea that that, like, oh my gosh, you came in here today? That's the type of awe that our humanity ought to elicit in us. So commendation strives to see people in our lives as the humans they are, those who are made in the image of God. And just to be clear here, like I'm a Christian pastor. This is a Christian church. So I'm gonna like reflect back on that as a reference point. People are made in the image of God. If you disagree with that, that's cool, but that's gonna be where I come back to time and time again. That people are worthy of dignity and honor and respect. And Jesus models this beautifully. When Jesus in, in Luke chapter 7 is invited to a religious leader's home, this is Simon the Pharisee. Jesus rolls in. He receives the hospitality. But who also comes in is a woman who's designated as a sinner, which is likely a sex worker. And this is a very interesting scene because what we get is this account of Simon the Pharisee's thought life at some extent. And he, Simon sees the, this woman who approaches Jesus to bless him. But then Jesus asks this really compelling question. He asks, do you see this woman? Now, everything in Luke 7 in that scene tells us that Simon has observed this woman and seen her, but he is restrained, even constrained to only see this woman as a sinner. 
Jesus is asking for Simon, and I think by extension, you and me to see something more than these exterior designations that religion maps onto people. But that's not all. See, if commendation does that work, strives to see and invites people to see those around us as worthy of dignity and honor and respect, Compassion invites us to consider their story. So you have commendation, the call to see, and then compassion, the moment to consider their story. Compassion is what motivates Jesus to slow down. Compassion is what motivates Jesus to stop and receive the interruptions. Compassion is what like, motivates Jesus to turn and feed the hungry. This is like a fundamental posture of the follower of Jesus. I think this is the language we need commendation and compassion because they invite us to value a posture over a position. So let's just stay here for a moment. I am not saying that positions are irrelevant, by no means. Like I even get the utility, possibly even the need uh, of categories like affirming or non-affirming because if you're somebody who identifies as LGBTQ plus and you're like, I'm just trying to find a place where I can try and follow Jesus with integrity, but I'm not gonna be like openly shamed, those are helpful distinctions. And if you have a friend who identifies as LGBTQ+, and they are curious about Jesus, but your community doesn't really fit in a place, like, what are you to do? I get the utilities of these categories. But I also don't think that these categories are sufficient. Like, I don't think they tell the full story. For example, many of us wonder why it is that the church can embrace, without question, people who have gone through the process of divorce and remarriage, sometimes it, several times over, and then exclude gay couples, couples who sometimes have a love for one another that puts the love of many straight couples to shame. Like why this type of parsing and splitting of hairs? And I think what makes this question especially pressing in, is that the New Testament's teaching on divorce and remarriage is much more emphatic and clear than the New Testament's teaching on gay unions. And to state it bluntly, Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. We just have to wrestle with that. But he did teach on the sin of divorce and remarriage several times. And my point is this, so please hear me. My, My point is this, the church should not, like, it's not that the church should exclude divorced and remarried people. Instead, my point is that there seems to be an inconsistency on the part of church. And many of us are sitting here wondering why? In fact, that's what motivated a lot of the questions that came in here. Why? Like, why is it that the American church minimizes some sins while simultaneously making hetero or homosexuality the litmus test of faithfulness to Jesus? This is a legitimate question and one that we must wrestle with. See, if we want to get right down to it, the sin that we tend to minimize, the sins that we tend to minimize happen to be the ones that are emphatically denounced with greater frequency than homosexuality. For instance, there are literally hundreds of verses in the Bible denouncing idolatry. Idolatry can take the forms of things like greed or gluttony, basically anything that we seek to establish our security with other than God. By contrast, there are three, maybe two, depending on how you read the Sodom and Gomorrah passage, three passages in the Old Testament and six passages in the New Testament that attend to this topic. And yet people guilty of the former sins are embraced without churches, like without question in our churches while people guilty of the latter sins tend to be excluded. What is wrong with this picture? Is there anything wrong with this picture? 
yes, um, there is something wrong with this picture. And I think it is in part the embrace of a position over a posture. See, a, po a position allows me to stay far off, to remain in my disgust, but a posture of commendation and compassion, it draws me in, it draws me near. And curiously, when, when people tried to force Jesus and they tried to force Jesus's hand to, to make an either or designation. Jesus resists in those moments. And instead, he starts to embody, like to live out a kingdom alternative. He starts to like zig where his religious culture zags. Cultural, religious, and political sirens like call to us to see this particular conversation as an either or. An issue where Christians must, must either accept that homosexual sex is sin and then bar people from the kingdom and the church, which is where most evangelical churches stand. Or we must accept the opposite, that there is absolutely nothing sinful about homosexual activity in the context of a covenantal union, and that is therefore perfectly okay with God, which is where many progressive churches stand. It's either one or the other. And now I am aware that we cannot wish away deep cultural differences. Like I just, like you may like have a person that comes to mind with whom you hold this difference. That difference may not be resolved. I have no idea what that takes to resolve a difference like that yet. I'm learning that it happens and I'm learning it happens with greater frequency than I would expect. But I do believe that we can move toward those considered to be our enemies at a cultural level with goodwill and love. Like we don't have to embrace that narrative. And I think we could do that with commendation and compassion in hand. Like we can show kindness and dignity to those whose views, lifestyles, and convictions chafe against our moral intuitions. We actually can do this. And do you want to know how? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I, I dare say that that might be the only way, but I'm getting ahead of myself. That's for the end. Because this is hard. And we live in a moment that is, are, like it's deeply entrenched. We are entrenched in positions more than we are in postures of other-centered love, myself included. And so have you ever wondered, how did we get here? 2022. And you're like, well, I have some vague notion. I've lived it. But just consider this question. How did we get to a cultural moment where a song like Unholy feels like an anthem of liberation for some to let the freakiness out, but for others is like a threat that they need to guard from? How did we get here? See, again, it is not conjecture to say that we are here because of a violent culture war. And so for the next few moments, um, let me just map this out. Some of this may be new. Some of it may not. Uh, this, however, is where we're going. If you rewind just 60 years ago uh, to 1962, uh, for context, my parents weren't even born yet. Uh, so at that point in 1962, 49 of America's 50 states still had sodomy laws on the books. What that means is that it was uh, homosexuality and homosexual sex acts were illegal and enforceable by law. And these laws, they drove the sexual and gender minorities into enclaves and into gathering sites that became flashpoints of abuse. And 
In the summer of 1969, outside the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village in New York City, the police came to raid and arrest uh, sexual and gender minorities at the Stonewall Inn. The Stonewall Inn was owned by the mob, and so there's this interesting thing like, oh, it was a place of refuge, but they would like jack up all the prices on drinks. It was a manipulative thing across the board. But in this, it was this flashpoint. As police press in, the people press back. Eventually, these riots start to break out, and the police are inside the building and the rioters light the building aflame. Other police come, eventually they get out and it's a multi-day riot. Out of the wake of it, this becomes kind of a galvanizing event that launches one of the most well-known gay advocacy groups of the day, the Gay Liberation Front. A few years later from that, 1974 or 73, I think it is, uh, that same group, the Gay Liberation Front, they declare a war on normalcy. And what this means is that they are calling for a cultural shift in mass. That is, they want to see the cultural injustice, their ostracization from the culture to be um, like mended. They, they want some sort of reconciliation at a cultural level. But then something tragic happens. This is the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s. And all of the energy and inertia that was going towards cultural change then shifted inward in that community for care and it was like things were just waiting in limbo. As I get to the height of the AIDS epidemic in America at the end of the 1980s, there's two academics that emerge. This is uh, Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen. They are the two authors of the book called After the Ball how America will conquer its fear and hatred of gays in the 90s. Uh, Kirk and Madsen, they basically bring their expertise from psychiatric and public relations domains to bear on the gay community, and they, they give this comprehensive way forward. And noticing the moment in front of them, this is what they say in the work after the ball. As cynical as it may seem, AIDS gives us a chance, however brief, to establish ourselves as victimized, as a victimized minority, legitimately deserving of America's special protection and care. Now those may sound like charged words, just so, so bear with me. In essence, uh, Kirk and Madsen, they argued that homosexuals must change their presentation to the heterosexual community if real change was to occur. And so they proposed this campaign called the Waging Peace Campaign. And this was a, an agenda that was meant to be comprehensive. It rested on three pillars, desensitize, jamming, and conversion. And I know this is starting to feel like a legitimate university lecture at this point. We'll get to the Bible in a moment. Uh, just think about this like this. If you have a fear of heights, what do you do? You have to climb the heights. And in other words, you have to have courage to face the fear. Likewise, if you are facing broad cultural homophobia, what do you have to do? We have to climb the heights. And so, this is, is really how Kirk and Madsen put it. Open, frank talk makes gayness seem less furtive or sneaky, alien and sinful, more above board. Constant talk builds the impression that public opinion is at least divided on the subject and that a sizable block, the most modern up-to-date citizens, accept or even practice homosexuality. That is the pillar of desensitize. So what about jamming and conversion? Well, if that's the, this is what the authors then say. The purpose of victim imagery is to make straights feel very uncomfortable. That is to jam with shame the self-righteous pride that would ordinarily accompany and reward their anti-gay belligerence. Now, I just want to pause right there. However you, like wherever you sit at this moment in this conversation, 
these are like I, as I was reading these words, I, I was just like, oh, these are charged. Like I, I, I can't ignore this, that there is a reward for anti-gay belligerence. So another, remember, words matter. The authors go on. So they're, they're trying to, to embrace a new type of imagery, to lay a groundwork for the process of conversion by helping straights identify with gays and sympathize with their underdog status. If the church was being the church, this method I do not think would actually have to be embraced because there would have been a previous embracing that had taken place. But needless to say, like the comprehensive scope of this campaign over half a century, it worked. It worked, like we are living in the success of the Waging Peace campaign. And there's things to be celebrated about that. Uh, there are also things that as followers of Jesus, we have to have concerted conversations. We have to have uh, conversations with compassion and commendation in hand. And so, um, like if you don't think that this is something that has been solidified, at the end of President Obama's presidency, the Stonewall Inn was made a national monument. And the truth is that gender and sexual minorities in that time, and, and even still today, they're not commended as people to be loved, but problems to be solved. And though there has been movement, we're still having this conversation. And so the question that comes to my mind in the midst of that little survey, and we're not done yet, is if, this, if, if there are people like the Gay Liberation Front and, and the authors of After the Ball who are saying, we need to contend for justice, what are they moving against? Well, they're, in an ironic twist, they're moving against something called morality. See, against the backdrop of the civil rights movement, the second wave of feminism, gay rights, sexual revolution, and the expanding language around evolution in schools, there is a group that rises up called the moral majority. Uh, the leader of this, Jerry Falwell, who also founded Liberty University, um, he essentially adds fire to the conversation and not fire for warmth. I do not like the tone here. And we just have to recognize that this is present. This is something a part of our history that is need, like that we need, a deep repentance is needed from this. Falwell comes on to say that he is going to build this group for, to endorse conservative social values, uh, pro-church, pro-America. Here are some quotes uh, from the Moral Majority's founder. Someone must not be afraid to say moral perversion is wrong. If we do not act now, homosexuals will own America. If you and I do not speak up now, this homosexual steamroller will literally crush all decent men, women, and children who get in its way, and our nation will pay a terrible price. AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals. It is God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. Do you feel that? This is the tone that gripped a movement. This is the undercurrent that was surging. This is the thing that the Gay Liberation Front was moving against, and for good reason in my mind. And for many of us, this is a side of the culture war that we just simply know better because this is the backdrop that shaped the conservative ideals that we grew up with. And we are likely disillusioned by this because we have seen the harm extended through people we love to people who are strangers or to other people we love and it just doesn't make sense. 
See, this political spirit on, on left and right, progressive and conservative, it has made its way down into our hearts. And if we're not careful, like we too will hold people in contempt that God has made in his image. And instead of seeing the beauty and humanity of others, difference will register as disgust. Don't bypass this, folks. Like disgust is a powerful thing. It is toxic and it is more or less normal. Just think about what you encounter on, I don't, I don't know, presumably TikTok or the Instagrams or Facebook or something. Clearly, I'm on all these platforms. Uh, woke people disgust me any given day. Christian nationalists disgust me. The LGBTQ plus community disgusts me. White heteronormative people disgust me. People who voted for Trump disgust me. The radical left disgusts me. It goes on and on. The language of disgust is a pretty accessible way to just say this is how I feel. See, what we think and what we say about Jesus and the LGBTQ plus community has been deeply shaped by the culture we live in. For good and for ill. Left, right, progressive, conservative, like our sense of disgust is constantly driven by outside forces. We just have to reckon with that. In many cases, we have to repent of that. And in some places, there's an area of celebration, but most often it's like woefully discouraging. Here's a place where I was discouraged this week, reading Stanley Hauervoss, an ethicist. So I want you to share in my discouragement right now, a little, a little camaraderie, if you will. Hauervoss says this, by and large, Christians have not lived or understood the political nature of their convictions about marriage and sex. Our current sexual ethics is largely made up of inconsistent borrowings from the various options provided by our culture. Howard Voss will go on later to say that the, like, we have no moral ground to stand on when it talks to LGBTQ plus matters. Because in 1969, marriage was made no fault and people just started in mass getting divorced for any and every reason. And so there is no grounds on which Christians can stand. And, and he's saying that as, what he, as somebody who is divorced and remarried. See, my point is this. If this is the backdrop of our cultural moment as followers of Jesus, what should we do? Because it's a hot mess out there, folks. <laughs> well, for starters, we need like more than just proper language. I, I am like going to push for commendation and compassion. I, I want the implications of commendation and compassion in this community, but we need more than that. We need more than our moral intuitions or our gut instincts about justice and morality because those have been shaped by the culture around us. We need to wrestle with the origin of our ethic, which I think means we need to wrestle with, wrestle with the scriptures. So this is where we come to the Bible. By the way, this now is our seventh inning stretch. This is about the normal duration of a teaching. So if you need to like stand up or something, you're adult learners, just embrace it. Like if you need to stand up, sometimes you gotta move around a little, uh, grab some coffee or tea because we're about to lock in for a moment. Um, I just wanna refresh my disclaimer from the beginning. I, again, I'm not bringing these thoughts to bear as the, the, like this is the final word from the Gateway Church. This is the final word from Kyle. These are not like me moralizing my preferences or like a thus saith the Lord moment. Instead, I want to walk through a handful of contested texts and highlight how they compel me to think about Jesus, sex, and the LGBTQ plus community. We're on the same page? Okay. So with that said, let us just start at the beginning. If you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap, or it's gonna be on the screen, but we're gonna start in Genesis chapter two. Just to be clear, I know Genesis chapter two does not talk or address homosexual sex acts. I know that. 
but it's also where a number of biblical authors go to reflect on marriage and sex. It's where God's created good is found before the human fallout. And so I just want to pick up there. We're going to start in verse 18. This is what we read. Yahweh said, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, if you were here for a teaching on women and authority, you might recall this little passage here. Uh, that, that, and so it'll sound familiar. And in that teaching, we unpacked the phrase suitable helper. We spent a lot of time talking about uh, the, the word helper or that, the word ezer as help, this Hebrew word that really has little to nothing to do with conventional helping around the home, dishes, taxes, etc. It actually has, it's a militaristic term. It has to do with this like help. This idea that the woman is coming alongside as like a warring partner. But that's not the whole phrase. The whole phrase is ezer konegdo. Give that a try, ezer konegdo. Yeah, that, that Hebrew word konegdo, it carries the idea of mutuality. A, a leading Hebrew lexicon, bdag, describes it like this. A help corresponding to him, that is, equal and adequate, adequate to himself. Here's the relevant point from one author. If it were simply Eve's humanness that made her a helper, then the word K or like would have been just fine. The verse would then read, I will make a helper like him. But to make the point, Adam needed not just another human, but a different sort of human, a female. God used the word konegdo. This word potentially conveys both similarity, K, and dissimilarity, neged. Eve is a human and not an animal, which is why she is K, like Adam. But she is also a female and not a male, which is why she is different than Adam or neged opposite him. We actually see the implications of this as you continue on in Genesis 2 and you pick up at verse 23. This is this little poetic reflection from Adam as he sees this. Now, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha for she was taken out of Ish. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So in this place, in this paradigm, there is a thing that is together, that becomes two, that comes together, and in that reality, there is exposure without shame. And I want to, I start us here in this account because this sits right before the human fallout story. This sits before humanity abandons their trust in God's definition of good. And really, this is before humanity's rebellion and the invasion of sin and in this place, this is, again, how we see, see this scene playing out. God formed humanity. That, that is, God formed Adam, which is a, a word play on, like, dust. God formed Adam, humanity, from the Adama, dust, breathed into the dust. So humanity is dirt and divine breath. So you have humanity there, this singular thing. And what we hear is that that is not good. And so, in response to that not good, humanity receives distinction. And we hear this in, in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, this little poetic reflection that that is as male as male and female. And then the distinction, the diversity comes together in unity. So God forms humanity, humanity receives distinction, and then diversity comes together in unity for partnership and flourishing. This is what I would like to call the Eden ideal. And this sequence, one becoming two, two coming together to become one, is the seedbed for both Jewish and Christian conceptions of marriage or covenant fidelity and unity, distinction, 
revealing the Eden ideal. And so for the sake of time, what I want to do is I just want to dive into those contested texts. Uh, we're going to start in everyone's favorite book, the book of Leviticus. Um, and I want to just go right to Leviticus 18 and 20. In Leviticus 18, we read this. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable or taboo. Leviticus 20, 13. If a man has sexual relations with a, a man as one does with a woman, both of them will have done what is detestable or taboo. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. How are you doing? Not great. No. So I don't want to bypass the deep pain inflicted over the years with these words. I don't want to further weaponize them. And even reading them like that risk bubbles up. And so here's what I want to help us say. I want us to slow down and situate ourselves contextually the best that we're able so that we do not react to these because these are reactive texts unless we react and then ignore and abandon them. So a little context for some help. By the time that we get to the story, the children of Israel, they're in the process of receiving a new moral, ceremonial, and civil vision for what it means to live with fidelity to Yahweh. In other words, they're like trying to become the people of God. And, at this, and they've lived for hundreds of years with a fragmented vision and view of God as they were enslaved in Egypt. But with power, God delivers the people of Israel and then invites them to become his covenant partners. And this is already kind of a shaky point in the story. They say yes, and then they like actually go and worship another God, but then Moses says, no, 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 like, like keep your promise. And then God says, he relents and says, okay. And so there's this moment now where how are you going? Like what's going to happen for these people? Like how are they going to become the, the distinct people? You might even say queer. How are they gonna become the queer people of God among the nations? I actually thought that was a really clever use of queer means different. So anyways, um, I was trying to insert some levity, but it seems to have fallen flat. Uh, Leviticus then is this little place where it's a hinge, a story about how a holy God, distinct, might meet with and transform a not yet holy people. This is still the story we're in, by the way. And as such, when we come to these two verses, it's crucial that we engage them on their own terms. And just to get a sense of what's going on in the literary context, here's just a brief sampling of the laws surrounding our verses in chapters 18 to 20. Uh, let me just roll these out. There's the prohibition against incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality. Many of these have been carried forward into the New Testament. Theft, lying, oppression of your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in the court of law, slander, harboring ill will towards your brother or sister. And taking the Lord's name in vain, making your daughter a prostitute, turning to witches or necromancers. But there in the midst of all of it is an alternative. And it's this, in Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, Leviticus is one way that the Bible reveals the God of Israel and how the God of Israel is meeting his people in order to rightly order their desires according to the Eden ideal. God meets Israel where they're at, accommodates to their scenario, and then invites them into something new. And these laws are troubling. They should trouble us. But maybe not for the reasons we think, because... These texts are, in fact, rooted in God's desire to fill creation with his love through a transformed people. There's this gal, Ruth Haley Barton, who says that the best gift that we can give to one another is our transforming self. And that's, that grammar is brutal, but the, but the reality is beautiful. 
that we are all in this process. And this is like this collective vision of God walking with a people in a process of restoration and formation into a people of love. Therefore, to divorce these verses from their context is, I think, to divorce ourselves from the hope of understanding them generally, let alone their redemptive trajectory in the biblical story. But that's uh, getting ahead of ourselves. And so, again, when it comes to these two verses, the questions that emerge is like, what is being prohibited? And are Leviticus 18 and 20 even relevant for today? And what's so interesting is that virtually no scholar worth their salt contests whether or not the law prohibited same-sex sexual acts. That's not prohibited or even argued about. The contested reality is whether or not those acts were coercive or mutual. That is, what type of power dynamics are in play, and perhaps everything is about sex, but sex is about power, as is attributed to Oscar Wilde. Like, uh, are these acts coercive or mutual? And there's a good case to be made either way. One that points to the broader patriarchal worldview that punished men for treating men like women. This is what's called the feminization of the passive partner. And this says that there is coercion in view when sex between the same gender is involved. But this cultural perspective is more difficult to argue from or for from Leviticus 20 because this verse in, in Leviticus 20, 13, it, it presents mutual participation in the act and then mutual condemnation. And so under this rubric, the, the laws would categorize a, a general prohibition of same-sex sexual acts as outside the bounds of God's Eden ideal. That, that is the prohibition. That's what's being prohibited. And some stop the conversation here. Like, they're like, okay, no, no, we're good. Like, the conversation's over. God said it. That settles it. I believe it. But, but it's not. Like, that doesn't settle the conversation. Let me just give you one compelling, at least to me, example why. It goes like this. If we make these two verses relevant to how we consider our sexual ethic today, it is like cherry-picking from the Old Testament laws according to what makes sense to us to our social location and to our moral intuitions, what we think ought to be right or wrong. I like how one, uh, one scholar, J.R. Daniel Kirk, he, he quips like this in a little interview. This interview is really good, in fact. It's on the You Have Permission podcast. You have permission to be gay affirming. It's a, a really thorough conversation. But he asks this question in the midst of it. He says this, what were you doing on Saturday? Now, if you're like, think that the Bible's funny sometimes. He also, I thought that was a great question. He's asked, if we're going to take on board this one law and then apply it with rigor and hold it up as the, like, the litmus test of fidelity to Jesus, then we need to really be consistent. We gotta prohibit shellfish. Mixed fabrics, they're gone. Are, are you with me? Like bacon, no, no. And the Sabbath, well, we gotta start enforcing the Sabbath. And anybody who defiles the Sabbath, well, you have to take them outside of the camp and kill them. So capital punishment, it's back on the table. And if you're like, whoa, whoa, like pump the brakes, that's exactly the point that Kirk is making and why I think he's worth like giving a hearing on this because he reminds us that picking out morally convenient passages to condemn others and then saying, well, I'm not actually condemning you. It's God's word, so you need to take it up with him. That is not only lazy, it is dishonoring. That is in no way the spirit of commendation and compassion. It misses the point that, of what Jesus is doing with the kingdom of God. He comes to bring the law to its completion. That is what Jesus is doing. And I think this is compelling. At the end of the day, I don't find it convincing, but it is compelling. You have to wrestle with whether you find it convincing or not. 
Because curiously, it is Jesus and his disciples who draw on these and other laws in Leviticus to advance an ethical vision for Gentile inclusion, that is non-Jewish people, for Gentile inclusion into God's family by faith. Kirk is right that some Christians today use these passages, they cherry pick these verses, and then they clobber the LGBTQ plus community. And it is to our shame and it is due a deep repentance. But if Jesus and the authors of the New Testament are doing more than cherry picking these verses, and they do have relevance for shaping a Christian sexual ethic, then we are responsible for seeing how they are carried forward into the New Testament and then articulating as humbly as we can an alternative way So we just have to go there. That's the Old Testament. It's very brief, more to be said. But I invite you to turn with me to Romans 1. Uh, I said this a number of weeks ago, but um, Christians have a funny way of turning to Romans to answer like every question. I think we would do well to remember that Romans is not, it is like a magisterial letter, but it is not a systematic theology. Paul is writing into a divided church. He is calling for unity in that place. And so what we have here in Romans 1 is the start of that call for unity. Paul begins by outlining a picture of human sinfulness. Here are some of the ways that he describes it. This starts in verse 18. He says that Christians have suppressed the truth. There's foolishness and idolatry. There's exchanging the glory of God for created things. There's sexual impurity or pornea. There's envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice and gossip. And right in the middle of this, this whole passage, there's the relevant text for us. It's in verses 26 and 27 that say this, because of this, that is because of the exchanging of the glory of God, because of the foolishness and idolatry, because of all of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even the women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with the women and were inflamed with lust for other, another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So much like the face value reading of Leviticus 18 and 20, I think that our impulse is to like punt this passage, like get this thing out of the Bible. But I think what our generation forgets is that at this time, Emperor Claudius has kicked all the Jews out of Rome and he's done so because they were arguing, causing these public disputes about whether or not Gentiles and sexual minorities could be included in the church of Jesus apart from the law. And Paul speaks into this cultural tension starting in in verses 18 to 32 by outlining the truth of the law. And the truth is this, no one can live up to the standard of God's holiness. The whole project in Leviticus, it's actually not taken place. And if this, this is, by the way, not the formula that you have to give somebody the, good, the bad news before you can give them the good news. Paul's doing something different. This is um, a trap. This is like a rhetorical device that Paul is like, he's goading on these self-righteous religious people who've taken on Jewish identity. He's saying, here's all the sins of the Gentiles. And they're like, yeah, get it, Paul. Get it. Like, tell them what's up. I don't know if they're saying that. That's my interpretation of it. But in some sense, they're saying, yes, get them. But then something different happens. In chapter 2, Paul rounds on the self-righteous who are boasting in their position as God's people. And he says this, you therefore have no excuse. I think these words are actually needed in the American church. So 
We therefore have no excuse. We who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. For Paul, in the end, there is only one group of Roman Christians. They are all united in their bondage under sin, for they have all sinned. And likewise, they are all united in justification because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And in case you're not hearing this because those sound like weird Bible categories, Paul is fighting for the inclusion of the Gentiles and the sexual minorities in this community. Paul is fighting for basically the inclusion of everyone who is ungodly, all of the unholy folk. In fact, Paul will then go on in Romans 5 to make this crystal clear at just the right time, Romans 5, 6, when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? For the ungodly. Paul is not advocating for the, like, the pursuit of ungodliness or sin. Paul is reconfiguring Christian identity under the reign and rule of King Jesus. So it is away from superiority and toward the place where God's redemptive power rests, namely in our weakness. Like the thing that will unite us in Jesus is that we are all weak. This is the beauty of the gospel on display in Romans. And Paul's point is this, that that's where Jesus is to be found, is in our weakness. But what happens is we get like all up in Romans 1 and we start talking about whether or not Paul is referring to coercive sexual relationships, excessive lust, pederasty, and then we fail to see God moving in Christ toward the ungodly. The point is none of us have a place to stand. And now those things, like what are the nature of the sexual acts? We're gonna get to that, they're significant. But if we do so without seeing the tone, like the posture of commendation and compassion, then we will miss what's happening here. See, our posture is more significant than our position. Like we can think we have come to the right position and maybe we even have. But if we hold that position with condemnation in our hearts, then it is we who stand condemned. And I'm not naive, like I know that at the end of the day, we will hold a position. And so what I would say for this church, like if you wanna consider Gateway home, this is what I would say. Love requires that we do the hard work of not glossing over the issue. Where Romans one is concerned, no one disputes the prohibition. Like no one d disputes what's going on. They dispute what it means. That's where the wrestle is. So we just have to ask, does Paul have a vision for consensual, non-lust-filled, monogamous, homosexual love? As Matthew Vines, James Bronson, and Dale Martin, and many others say, like, we're not even on the same planet as Paul. <laughs> like, he has no idea. Therefore, these scriptures have no bearing on what's happening. And I actually think there's a good point to be had there, that the way that, like, consensual, monogamous, like, gay unions happen, like, the fact that the church is trying to like make some sort of contested area in the political space, I'm like, what are we doing? Like our judgment is not for those who are outside of the household of faith. Like, no, like insurance, end of life care. Like, are you kidding me? Absolutely. See, Paul, as according to Vines, Bronson and Martin, had no conception of lifelong monogamous, equal status, same-sex relationships. He was constrained by patriarchy and coercive sexual relationships such as pederasty. And I'll, I'll not go long on this. I don't, I don't find that as con like the most convincing argument. 
And you can go and read Vine's book. His conversation is uh, Preston Sprinkle. You can read Bronson and Martin and, and others. But the, the challenge with this view is that Paul neither employs the many Greek words used to describe pederasty, like, like the ones up here, the lover of boys, corrupter of boys, seducer of boys. Nor does Paul employ any explicit mention of master-slave relations, rape, or prostitution. Instead, Paul uses language of mutuality throughout this passage, passion for one another, males with other males. And it's important to acknowledge that the relationships between adult men and adolescent boys or young men, those were the most commonly attested same-sex relationships in the ancient world. And if somebody argues otherwise, they are wrong. There are exceptions, however, like Plato's Symposium, which discusses committed lifelong same-sex relationships and a whole slew of others. But pederasty is by far the most kind and common common kind of relationship. But Paul's inclusion here, and this is where it gets interesting, and this is where the tension, I think, and the wrestle for me has been. Paul's inclusion of female same-sex sexual acts in verse 26, it broadens the scope of sexual expression beyond the, band, the brand of coercive sex present in the patriarchy of Paul's day. In other words, it's not just pederasty or men filled with excessive lust. There's something more going on. And I know that I'm leaving a ton on the table there. And so I, I, like I, this is again a call to like have these conversations, please. If, like, if this is something that you want, need, and like need a place to wrestle through this, that little group that's gonna start a Zoom and hopefully become an in-person thing, please, please go there. And what comes into sharp relief, I think, is this in 1 Corinthians 6 where we encounter men who have sex with males listed alongside a, a number of other vices uh, that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I just wanna hear this in context and, and we're, we're coming near to the end here, folks. Here, here is 1 Corinthians 6, nine through 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is the hinge. And this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. See, this is more than a passage on exclusion. This is a word of hope. And here's what I mean. There are two words that become um, fiercely debated, and they're debated in verse 9. It's the word malakoi and arsenokoitis. Malakoi refers to men who cross gender lines and receive sex from other men, and arsenokoitis is this novel word from Paul, uh, men who have sex with other men. And typically, it's thought that the arsenokoitis are the one who solicit the sex, and the malakoi are soft, as the word can mean, sometimes fabric, but it's often this idea of the passive sexual partner. Again, we should acknowledge that the Apostle Paul was most likely familiar with a coercive form of same-sex sexuality. And it's worth observing that precisely because this form of same-sex sexuality was so common, there was standard terminology for talking about these relationships. The older men were Erastus or lovers and the younger were Eremos or beloved. So if these emotions or if these relationships were Paul's target, it would have been reasonable for him to use these standard Greek terms. Instead, Paul uses this apparently novel term, arsenokoitis, and I'm compelled that this is Paul carrying forward the general prohibition in Leviticus into the New Testament as a path for holiness among Gentiles and sexual minorities in the Corinthian church. 
And I know that this is where some of us part ways. So let me just show you why I think that this is, uh, like, why I'm compelled that Paul carries this general prohibition forward. You see these two texts right here, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. And you can just see the words here. You can see, and I know you love, this is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, but you can see arsenos and koitin there, like you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. And then in verse, in, in verse 13 of chapter 20, you see them right next to each other. It is entirely reasonable to think that 1 Corinthians 6 is Paul renewing the Levitical prohibition for the New Testament church. He is a Pharisee, was a Pharisee in his day. He likely had these things committed to memory. I don't think it would be a difficult thing for Paul to then draw on this as he's considering the position of the people in Corinth. Corinth is like, you could have had a whole podcast called like the rise and fall of the Corinthian church. I mean, it was crazy there. There was a guy having sex with his mother. I mean, it's just like, it's insane. But Paul doesn't stop there. He actually says, such were some of you. He moves forward. So let's just recap as we come to a close. Genesis 2 offers an account of mutuality and distinction in humanity, not just another human. Leviticus calls for the formation of a holy people according to God's Eden ideal. That is not lived out. We come and we see that Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene, the Jesus movement comes up. Romans then makes a case that God's redemptive word, namely Jesus in the flesh, meets us in our ungodliness, including male and female same-sex sexual acts to draw us into an alternative vision of flourishing. And 1 Corinthians 6, Paul brings forward the Eden ideal because of these reasons, because we were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. My whole point in all of this is that Jesus is the one who makes a way forward. There's this very interesting moment in the life of the prophet of Isaiah where he talks about the eunuchs. This is Isaiah 56, four and five, he says, for this is what Yahweh says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give my, like within my temple and its walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Eunuchs in Jesus's day were considered dirty gross, cast to the side. But Jesus, the gospels say, becomes a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Now you might be wondering, why are you talking about eunuchs? See, Jesus is the one who wants to go where the freakiness is, not to be a killjoy, but to like release true joy in those spaces, to say that the most delightful and erotic thing that you can ever encounter is union with the living God. Not to form, Jesus did not come to form and enshrine the nuclear family, but to call us into union with God by the Spirit. And what we all inevitably have to wrestle with and what we have to weigh in this conversation is how God's created good has come to bear through the life of Jesus on the church. I cannot and more, I will not answer that for you. I hope that what I've given is like a, a way through the text, but there's not just that way. We can have solidarity in Jesus, even if that comes to the place where we may not have fellowship. 
And I like want to contend for a dialogue across difference because what I see in Jesus, and I know like I, I can hardly say this because I, I am not a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, but I know of folks who are, and I know the way that they talk about the delight that comes from their union with Jesus, and I know the way they talk about the pain of isolation. So if we're gonna talk about this, and if we're gonna become a place where eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom might say, I will, I will give all of my fidelity, all of my trust, all of my allegiance, to Jesus here, then we actually have to be a community. The 96% of us actually have to be the type of community who would do that as well. Otherwise, we are hypocritical and we are fooling ourselves to say that we are open to receive people. So in some sense, I think before we start to experience like the resonant note of love in the life of this church, we like have to embody the message of God's love. I, I heard it this way. The fire of God will not fall on divided altars. And so if we want to become a place and a people who are transformed into people of love, then we just have to wrestle with this. What decision you come to, I do care about. I think that there's much to be had here, but please do not wrestle alone. Like, please do not just say, I know these people and the way they love, this cannot be the end of the matter. Like, no, like it can't, we have to work it all the way through. And what I know is that's gonna come at a cost but please let us bear that with you. That is my plea, is that we might become the type of people who hold commendation and compassion as our fundamental posture, that might we, we might come to the scriptures with humility, say we could be wrong about this, but based on where we've come through these things, we think that this is a place of integrity and we wanna hold that with humility in hand. Mm -hmm.